Hi, welcome back to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. We're going to continue our conversation with Patrick Bond and Michael Hudson about China. Uh, the first part, if you haven't watched it, I probably should go back and watch it because it's about uh, more of the domestic situation. And now we're going to talk about China's international footprint uh, and, and how we see it. Uh, so join us and back in just a few seconds. Please don't forget the donate button, subscribe button, the ring the bell button if you're watching on YouTube. And uh, the most important thing, get on to our email list uh, by going to the website. So this is the second part of my discussion with Patrick and Michael. Uh, we're going to talk now about China's international footprint. Uh, we ended the last segment talking about uh, Michael's comment that in terms of climate change, uh, China at least has the ability or a, a, a more c capability of dealing with climate rather than the United States in particular with a government that's so dominated by fossil fuel interests. But it was left with the, the jury is still out on whether China will or will not. Um, and, and that's a whole nother conversation, uh, which I, I will do in another segment. We'll really dig into just what is China doing when it comes to climate change. But now we're going to deal with the issue, two questions. One is uh, the sort of a neocon accusation uh, but it's also coming from the Biden administration, although the Biden administration has a lot of neocons these days, uh, which accuses China of being uh, aggressive in a military way. They point to the South China Sea and Taiwan and such. Um, the second issue is, is China in its economic relations with other countries uh, trade for mutual benefit, uh, investment for mutual benefit, as China claims? Or is it a form of predatory capitalism? And that's really where we're going to spend most of our time uh, talking about today. Um, when it comes to Taiwan, we're not going to talk much about Taiwan or at all, because one, it's not an external issue. Taiwan is part of China. Whatever you make of China's policy towards Taiwan, uh, it is part of China. And it's really a, quite a separate question. So we're going to start with the question of China's economic relations uh, with other countries. As far as being in a military aggressive country, and around, as, uh, as I said, the Americans are claiming, um, I don't even see the point of talking about it because I don't know where it is. So if somebody can write in and tell me where China is a military, militarily aggressive, uh, please do. Uh, I don't know if any either of my guests wants to say that, but right now I don't even know what what one would talk about. Uh, so we're going to dig into, as I said, is China's investment, economic relations, trade and investment loans for mutual benefit, or are they predatory? Uh, and so now joining me again is Patrick Bond. He's a political economist and political ecologist. He teaches at the University of Johannesburg at the Department of Sociology. Also joining me is Michael Hudson, Michael is an economist, professor emeritus of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, a researcher at the Levy Economics Institute at Bard College. He's also a former Wall Street analyst. Thank you both for joining me. 
It's great to be back. Thanks, Paul. All right. So Michael kicked us off in the first segment. So Patrick, you kick us off. So trade for mutual benefit or predatory? What's What do you say, Patrick? Well, predatory because China is absolutely joining within global capitalism. I mean, don't take it from me. May I quote Xi Jinping himself, World Economic Forum, a couple of days before Donald Trump was inaugurated as president in 2017, he said, quote, in the Davos World Economic Forum, right, the, the, the big gathering of capitalists, we must remain committed to developing global free trade and investment, promote trade and investment liberalization. We will expand market access for foreign investors, build high standard pilot free trade zones, strengthen protection of property rights, and level the playing field. China will keep its door wide open and not close it. Any attempt to cut off the flow of capital, technologies, products, industries, and people between economies and channel the waters in the ocean back into isolated lakes and creeks is simply not possible. Okay, within a few months of saying that, uh, Paul and Michael, she actually showed you could, and he put on all sorts of trade restrictions and financial restrictions and banned cryptocurrency. So I have no doubt that if there's political will in China, there are the instruments to actually change the system. But the choice of the Chinese capitalist class, and Xi Jinping as its leader, is to basically amplify global neoliberal corporate rule. I'll start with that provocation. Well, go ahead and give us some examples before we go to Michael. Well, yes. Yeah. So now the, the main reason that China would want to do this is because it's overproduced. It has vast excess capacities in its industrial and productive sectors. And it's in that, uh, Paul and Michael, I think you'd have to agree. We, we in the continent of Africa, I'm here in Johannesburg, the world's most unequal city, you know, benefiting from the historic repression. But what we're even seeing in, in South Africa is that predatory uh, capacity of Chinese financial capital that is promoting trade and new foreign direct investment that is, uh, let me say, inter-sub-imperial. So there are really two features to what we'd be worried about. One is that when China does export, it exports all around. And what we're finding certainly is the most serious sites of corruption in rail uh, corruption for locomotives built in China, financed by the Chinese banks that are gonna carry coal. And those were done with a family called the Guptas, and they've had to be canceled. I mean, there are more than 1,000 locomotives to carry coal that were ordered. A second case would be the extent to which the largest industrial project in the country is going to be driven by China based on a coal-fired power plant and heavy industry, which will be highly carbon-emitting. A third case here is the import of a knockdown kit-based factory for cars. So instead of really integrating into a well-developed automobile sector, China brings sort of ready-made, very um, capital-intensive systems. I could go on, and South Africa is one of the strongest sites, but you could go to uh, Zimbabwe, where that export of capital has entailed brutal repression for the sake of gathering cheap diamonds. So on the east side of Zimbabwe, the, the biggest diamond fields in the world, Morangi, the Chinese are very much in on that. And very repressive working with the uh, Zimbabwean dictatorship. Now, and, and actually being involved in the coup against Robert Mugabe in 2017 to ensure that conditions were even better for 
Chinese extraction. We could go through any number of the countries in this region, in this continent, to show a kind of new scramble for Africa. Excess capital in China, looking for a route out, finding in Africa, you know, quite easy pickings, and indebting many African countries. There is a Western rhetoric, which is the debt trap diplomacy kind of, you know, nonsense, as if the West doesn't do the same. But on the ground, it's absolutely brutal to be a victim of Chinese corruption, ecological damage, and then this overcapacity displaced into Africa. These would be some of the examples. I could go into the next stage, which is the multilateral relationships that Xi was talking about in Davos, in which in the UNFCCC, the World Trade Organization, the IMF, the World Bank, and countless other venues of imperial power, multilateral globalism by imperialist and sub-imperialist powers working together, what China set up as a set of global rules, it just doesn't work for the rest of the world. Uh, b- before I go to Michael, and you can expand on this if you want, Michael, or, uh, but I, I want to say something I said in the first segment. Uh, I don't think uh, what Patrick is saying, although he might disagree with me, I don't think so. Uh, nothing China's doing uh, compares to what the United States and the West does. Uh, the, the U.S. finance... Go ahead, Patrick. I'll agree with you and say that the uh, Western colonial powers, the European powers, came in and totally looted and and wrecked uh, Africa and divided it up. And then the United States in the post-war era. Uh, The Western model is something that China hasn't broken with, but has amplified. That's the the whole point, that this is a, let me call it a sub-imperialism because it fits within imperialism. Sometimes it's inter-imperial rivalry at stake, And we'll see Africa, like the Cold War, Soviet Union and the U.S., we'll see Africa becoming a site where, you know, competition for those raw materials for uh, fossil fuels will continue between the West and China. But the overarching approach is exactly what Xi Jinping told the World Economic Forum. Quote, we must remain committed to developing global free trade and investment and promote liberalization. And that's a very dangerous thing for a weak continent like Africa. Well, I don't. I have not followed uh, Chinese foreign investment at all, so I literally have nothing, no uh, knowledge or familiarity with that. Uh, what uh, I can talk about is what I'm especially in, and uh, that is superimperialism. It's how the United States has uh, used the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and international diplomacy to create a dollar standard that has underdeveloped the third world and has been uh, a disaster ever since uh, Bretton Woods uh, came into being in 1944. Uh, The strategy of the World Bank is uh, uh, to make uh, export loans from uh, Southern uh, sphere uh, countries uh, in ways that do not compete with the United States. The absolute prime directive of the World Bank is you must uh, make other countries depend on their food to the United, on the United States. You cannot have countries grow their own food. Uh, if there is a, what I was told uh, uh, at the Chase Manhattan Bank was, wherever there's land reform, there's communists. And uh, the, uh, the U.S. policy has been to overthrow any government at all that is seeking land reform or seeking to grow its own food supply. Uh, and uh, the IMF has uh, worked hand in hand 
with the World Bank to uh, essentially back uh, uh, oligarchies, especially financial oligarchies, friendly to the United States, to uh, make uh, loans basically for capital flight by foreign investors headed by U.S. companies and by uh a, a domestic client oligarchies to move their uh, funds out of the country at subsidized rates with IMF loans, then devalue. The IMF philosophy is that the way you can, uh, third world countries can compete is to lower their living standards, to, uh, un to keep lowering the price of labor, to, to keep sucking up uh, income to the top uh, by uh, foreign investors and uh, uh, the local oligarchy, to, to privatize and sell off uh, their public domain to foreign investors, to untax uh, raw materials, to untax uh, natural resource rents, to untax the uh, housing, to create uh, essentially a rollback of these countries to feudalism so that instead of developing these countries, it underdevelops them. And the main tool that the United States uses through the IMF, which you should think of as the IMF being a small room in the basement of the Pentagon, uh, used uh, essentially to promote uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policy and make sure that uh, you can uh, financially bankrupt uh, with sanctions or just uh, uh, withholding loans or currency raids on any country that's not following uh, the U.S. neoliberal uh, centralized uh, uh, control program. I don't, uh, the way that this is done is through the dollar standard. You've just seen last week the United States uh, grabbed seven, uh, uh, seven, was it trillion or billion dollars? Billion, billion, billion. It grabbed all of uh, no, no, billion, so billion foreign billion. exchange reserves here because it said uh, we've appointed uh, the Af Afghan version of Venezuela's Guaido. Uh, we get to appoint the leader of any country and we've taken all the money away from Afghanistan on behalf of the foreign leader. And uh, many Americans were attacked by Saudi Arabia and their Arab just um, Islamic just like Afghanistan. So we're going to uh, uh, sig uh, just seize uh, Afghan's uh, gold uh, uh, foreign exchange, just like the Bank of England seized uh, Venezuela's uh, gold reserves uh, and said, we're giving this to Mr. Guaido and the opposition to fight against the elected government uh, there. So uh, basically, the, uh, the, dollar, uh, the, the Western economies are centered on the dollar standard so that the, the Eurozone and America's uh, other satellites are, are basically uh, satellites of, uh, of the dollar area and keep in order to function internationally to uh, do their their, their uh, banking to uh, an investment and foreign trade they all have to depend on the dollar which makes uh, essentially gives the United States the right to the power to do what it's been threatening to do with Russia uh, and China uh, cut them both off from the bank clearing system so that essentially uh, they can't use the uh, uh, the dynamics uh, to clear uh, banks. Uh, the point that I'm making is the, the United States' way of controlling other countries is not military uh, because it, it, you'd need a, a draft for that. You'd need an army that actually would be uh, occupying. Uh, the era of uh, military occupation is all over. The mode of control is financial, and the financial mode of control is uh, essentially to make loans that uh, 
on terms that cannot be repaid so that when they're not repaid, the creditor countries, the U.S., can foreclose on the assets of countries like uh, uh, Paul Singer did on the assets of Argentina when it couldn't pay uh, uh, its foreign debts. China is in a, uh, a different position because its currency is not a global currency. Uh, it, it cannot, uh, when it makes a foreign investment on its Belt and Road Initiative, and I think when we're talking about uh, China's uh, foreign investment and uh, uh, foreign relations, the Belt and Road is really uh, what should be the key. Uh, the central part of this is China is... Uh, developing ports and transportation system to link its economy with uh, all the way to the Atlantic, if possible. It's uh, uh, bought up by the port of, uh, in Athens, uh, the port, uh, local port, uh, is now Chinese. It's seeking to buy up uh, ports in, uh, in, uh, in other countries. The security for these loans uh, are not general uh, government securities, like uh, a foreign debt uh, a foreign, uh, a Chase Manhattan loan to uh, uh, a foreign government will give uh, the United States the right to uh, grab uh, property of that government anywhere if it doesn't pay the bonds. The security is just the entire government's property. Uh, China is acting not as a money lender, is a financial investor, is not financial imperialism. It is, uh, it, it is investing essentially as a stockholder. The security for its loans, as I understand it, are the assets that it is uh, either creating or buying. So that if uh, for some reason the port of Greece didn't, uh, wasn't able to uh, pay whatever the stipulated liability was, uh, China couldn't grab uh, the Parthenon or grab uh, whatever uh, Greece had abroad. All, it, all it has is the backing of, uh, uh, of uh, the security itself. So in, uh, investing in a country in the form of direct investment uh, as equity investment instead of generalized financial credit is a completely different system and is the antithesis uh, of neoliberalism. Hmm. Uh, pa Patrick, go ahead. Thanks. I've got to disagree with you in the most comradely way, Michael, because we really are getting down to the question, does China, does Beijing's role in multilateralism and world finance present an alternative, as you posit, or, as I would argue, an amplification of the worst features? So let me just throw a couple of quotes at you. I think Barack Obama, when he was interviewed by The Economist magazine in 2014, the Economist interviewer said the key issue is whether China ends up inside the multilateral financial system or challenging. That's a really big issue of our times, I think. Barack Obama, quote, it is. And I think it's important for the United States and Europe to continue to welcome China as a full partner in these international norms. So really, I'm going to argue quickly that um, China's been assimilated into the IMF. It's not just the Yuan becoming one of the reserve currencies. It's not just that one corrupt criminal IMF managing director after the other. I'm not exaggerating. You know, Rato, Rodrigo Rato, the um, Spanish uh, leader who's in jail now. Uh, Dominic Strauss-Kahn accused of raping a, a, a hotel cleaner in New York and had to resign in 2011. Uh, the um, successor was um, Christine Lagarde, who was prosecuted successfully 
for uh, doing a deal with the Adidas chair to fund the French Conservative Party. And, and she was brought to, to the IMF and, you know, after the conviction and, you know, nothing happened. The Chinese voted in favor of keeping her on. Or Kristalina uh, Georgieva, the current IMF managing director, who was just implicated a few weeks ago in, you know, manipulating data on behalf of China when she was top World Bank official. One after the other, Michael, we've had IMF managing directors of the lowest caliber, right? World financial, you know, we would we have a name here, Tsotsi, you know, uh, low-level criminals. And yet China continues to support the leadership and never puts a challenge up, you know, again and again when there's elections. Wouldn't China with Russia, with Brazil, with India, with South Africa, with other emerging countries say it's time to get rid of the Europeans only. Right? That was the, the phrase in South Africa for whites only, Europeans only. They seem to have taken our old signs. They put them on the door of the IMF and China doesn't object. In fact, China invests even more. China raised its investments at the 2015 IMF recapitalization to record highs. It's the number two investor. You put the other bricks together there. They're nearly at that US 15% level where they could they could veto. And in terms of the content of what China's promoting in the IMF, it's exactly the same. We've never seen the Chinese delegates in the IMF come up and say this is wrong. Again and again, I think what I said with Xi Jinping's ideologically oriented global neoliberal corporate rule, the IMF is one, the World Bank's another, the World Trade Organization another. I could go into the UNFCCC where in 2009 in the Copenhagen Accord, Wen Jibao, the Chinese leader, agreed with Barack Obama to throw out any vestige of any potential, uh, you know, liability or, or accountability in climate. I could go on and on because, you know, you just find the Chinese fitting in, not as um, inter-imperial rivalries as, you know, Biden and before that Trump or Obama might have posited, but really as a sub-imperial ally of the West in multilateral financial oppression. You can't deny any of that, can you? Well, I certainly can't deny your examples because I'm I, I'm just uh, not familiar with them. And I assume you're on sound ground when you talk about uh, corruption. Uh, I think corruption is, again, what we talked about in the first uh, half. It spans socialism, uh, capitalism, feudalism. Uh, it, it's independent of the political system. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure that there's anything uh, uh, uniquely socialist or Chinese about it. Uh, you, you've quoted a number of uh, quotes from uh, the Chinese about, uh, 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 yes, uh, we want open markets and neoliberalism. Uh, I wondered about these quotes, and I talked uh, to the Chinese at the time uh, about them, and they said, look, we're, uh, we're really worried about America is trying to provoke a military attack on us. Uh, uh, we we are very defensive against the anti-Chinese uh, position of uh, the American government, especially the Trump administration. The only uh, are what they're trying to do is uh, drive a wedge between uh, their the various parts of uh, the U.S. Uh, state that is opposing it, and their main allies that they found are. Goldman Sachs and uh, the Wall Street interests. So, of course, they're going to say uh, 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 we want free trade. We we, we love uh, your American uh, uh, neoliberal uh, ideas. Uh, but these are these, these are words uh, to sort of uh, avoid the the kind of attack uh, that they're worried about. Of course, Obama would love to co-opt China into uh, the IMF. And into the World Bank, 
just the, uh, I think that would be uh, a disaster because I think the uh, these are U.S.-centered organizations whose I- ideal development strategy would be essentially to neoliberalize China. I don't see uh, China uh, ever having uh, been willing to join something like the Trans-Pacific Partnership that said uh, corporations can sue governments for any government rule, the, the taxes, uh, uh, the, the investment dispute uh, uh, clause of that, that uh, would have run against uh, anything that uh, China ever could, could have signed. Uh, I, I would say China is fighting against uh, this. Whether there is, uh, I have no reason to uh, uh, deny uh, all the examples that you can say about corruption and trying to get uh, uh, a foreign invest, uh, government to support your project instead of the U.S. project where the U.S. is trying to bribe other people. That's been the source of U.S. policy since 1945. Uh, that's how it's co-opted Europeans, who are certainly the easiest people of all to corrupt. Uh, the politicians. So I, I think that if you're going to have foreign relations with an absolute corrupt, uh, rotten uh, client oligarchy, uh, the only way that you can have foreign relations is to join the crowd uh, and outbid, uh, uh, outbid uh, your opponents uh, in bribery to uh, uh, get uh, uh, what you want. That's uh, probably a fact of every economy, and it, it doesn't it's not that it's socialist or capitalist. Uh, I don't know any way around that. If they want to, uh, uh, if they're promoting uh, one set of policies as opposed and companies as opposed to the U.S. sponsored companies, uh, I just don't know what the, what's the what's the solution. Well, may I, uh, Patrick? Pat, Patrick, just before you answer those points, let me just ask you something, and then then get to Michael's points. Uh, which is, aren't, aren't, isn't China doing more than just amplifying uh, what the U.S. and the West does? Uh, when you take it Latin America, China has provided, if I understand correctly, uh, a way for some of the governments, uh, progressive governments in Latin America that are trying to escape from American financial blackmail, uh, they're giving them another way to, to have finance and escape some of that. Uh, is that not uh, bucking the American system to some extent? Oh, I think, again, uh, Latin Americans would speak more eloquently than me, but the one country I've spent quite a bit of time in, in the, the Amazon, uh, on the Ecuadorian uh, border with Peru, a place called Yasuni, and in Quito, it's absolutely the opposite. It's where uh, the Chinese went behind uh, the back of the society to work with the then leader, Rafael Correa, to drill the most biodiverse hotspot in the world for oil. And we know what Chevron did there, Texaco, Chevron, you know, is, is implicated in $18 billion of damage and, and penalties. But what the Chinese are doing uh, is is really in the same mold. I think if I can find an alternative, Paul and, and Michael, you'll like this because well, ha- hang on just one sec Bef- before you move on. But hasn't China given financing to Venezuela, to Bolivia, uh, that's given them an alternative to the to the pressure the Americans put on? Oh, I'd love to see what the strings attached are because every time we hear about these alternatives, especially in really wretched countries like Zimbabwe, the Look East policy that Robert Mugabe described, he was adopting after in 
2000, the land invasions that he sort of promoted as having lost uh, a constitutional referendum and needed a, a sort of mass left populist project. He, he got the land invasions going, you recall, rights were kicked off, there were some benefits to that, but the West canceled him. And so he did a look East. But I must tell you, Paul, by 2016, uh, Mugabe was very old at the time. He died, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, 2020, I think it was 2019, uh, in his 90s. But he actually said, look, I, w I made a mistake by looking east because we had $15 billion of diamonds and we got some finance for that. But we only found $2 billion. The $13 billion disappeared. You can find his own speeches to say, you know, this is where the Chinese took our diamonds. So was there an alternative? to the kind of rapacious, in that case, it was a man called Sam Pa, notorious sort of cowboy in this region, and then jailed. But it was also a, a Chinese army company called Anjin, working with the Zimbabwean generals. Uh, and they killed hundreds in the area called uh, Marange to get what was the world's greatest diamond field. So may I just present to you what I think the alternative, it comes from Zhou Enlai the first premier. And in uh, 1963, he visited Africa. He came up with eight principles very quickly. Mutual benefit. Second, no conditions attached. Third, no interest or low interest loans. So as not to create a debt burden for the recipient country. Fourth, to help the recipient nation develop its economy. Fifth, not to create dependence on China. Now, these days with commodity exports, more or less all going to China, that's, that's radical. Uh, sixth, um, to help the recipient country with projects that need less capital and quick returns. Seventh, the aid in kind must be of high quality at the world market price to ensure technology can be learned and mastered by locals. And, and eighth, the Chinese experts and technicians working for the aid recipient country are treated equally with local ones with no extra benefits. Now, all of those eight those wonderful conditions that really reflected, you know, there was a Tanzania Zambia railway, the Tanzan railway. There were many projects of that era that I look at with you know, enormous nostalgia, because what we see today is absolutely brutally super exploitative and extractive. So I don't think what China does in this part of the world follows those eight principles. But if there are any Chinese that are going to put that sort of solidarity back onto the agenda, you'll have a lot of Africans supporting those very clear principles of solidarity, not super exploitation. Uh, Michael? Well, I can't disagree with what uh... Patrick said, I have had a contact uh, uh, with uh, numerous uh, Chinese, uh, I'm sorry, African uh, national leaders. Uh, I found them absolutely crooked. Uh, I've actually used uh, uh, some, uh, invested some of my own money. Uh, in all cases, I've, uh, uh, I found that one cannot deal with them unless uh, uh, one uh, matches their demands for corruption and crookedness. Uh, and that's uh, a fact of life that uh, uh, I guess uh, China has decided, well, it would be nice to be able to uh, have a democratic government and governments that actually represent the people. Unfortunately, the leaders of uh, many of the countries that uh, we want to have relations with are uh, uh, thorough scoundrels and uh, uh, kleptocrats. And uh, how do you deal? How, how can China deal with a kleptocratic government? Uh, uh, leadership of a country, uh, which are very many countries, uh, and still maintain uh, the ideals uh, that you designed, uh, that, you, that you cited. I don't know uh, uh, what the solution is, except, uh, well, they've, they've got to uh, meet the demands of uh, the corrupt uh, countries that uh, 
that the Americans and the British and the French have uh, put in power. Uh, the, uh, the, the Westerners have put in power corrupt, uh, a corrupt class, and that's uh, part of the problem that uh, prevents China from dealing with, uh, or any country, uh, or honest uh, people anywhere from dealing uh, with these countries in a non-corrupt way. I wasn't able to do it. I lost uh, quite a bit of money. Uh, my friends lost money. Uh, everybody I met on Wall Street, uh, uh, left-wingers, uh, 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 positive people, tried to help uh, African countries and uh, Latin American countries, and they all uh, said, we just can't cope with the degree of, of corruption. It's, uh, uh, it's uh, play their game or there's, there's no relationship. And yet, uh, maybe I can just jump in because if you've chosen the wrong partners, Michael, I'm absolutely delighted you lost your money. That's a good lesson. I hope many people are listening. <laughs> Don't work with corrupt dictators on this continent. Work with the masses. They're uprising, right? There's protests going on all the time. In this country, let's just give a quick example because when um, Xi Jinping worked very closely with Jacob Zuma, in fact, the Chinese brought South Africa into the BRICS, um, it was at the expense of helping our mass base. We had a great leader, you, you may know the name, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He passed away the day after Christmas a few weeks ago. A terrible loss because this was our greatest South African. And yet when uh, he wanted to have an 80th birthday and meet his old friend, the Dalai Lama, Xi Jinping's government and its predecessors again and again refused to give the South Africans permission to issue a visa, even though the Dalai Lama was, was in India. Um, this was the power to intervene, the political choices. Instead of working with Archbishop Tutu to help clean up the mess of the Zuma regime, that Beijing was absolutely supportive, including those tens of billions of rands or billions of dollars of loans for corrupt locomotives that China South Rail was buying. Um, and that were, you know, basically pass-offs to, to, to Zuma's allies, the Guptas. It's that choice. It was where you, you know, join with uh, the the corrupt kleptocrats, as you put them, put in place often by neocolonialism, or you break. And it's that choice that allows you to either really pose an alternative, say the way Cuba has, or the way, you know, alternative movements around the world have to unite together, for example, to get to get AIDS medicines off of the patent 20 years ago, which raised our life expectancy from 52 to, to, to 65 before COVID. That's the choice to work with the base or to amplify the problems by empowering, you know, the dictatorial, kleptocratic, corrupt crew. Again, I'm sorry you lost your money. I shouldn't have joked about that. But I do think we all get lessons from it, which is... I, I, I who's couldn't tell who was a crook and who wasn't a crook uh, at that time. You've got to spend more time here. <laughs> Many years, 40 years ago, uh, I know a lot more now uh, about politics. And I do think that corruption is inherent in politicians everywhere. Uh, it, no no uh, continent has a monopoly on it. Uh, I can't deny, uh, I'm sure you followed all of these cases. All I can say uh, is that I'm talking about the system of exploitation uh, that uh, needs to have an alternative to the IMF and the World Bank uh, system that's locked in. China uh, be, uh, being driven to de-dollarize its economy has to, uh, has, uh, it, it, a leadership pushed upon it to create an alternative to a dollarized 
world economy. Uh, everything that I'm writing in China and my lectures are how China can create a different international economy. Uh, uh, that's, uh, uh, I'm sure that the cases you're right are, you know, part of the, uh, uh, part of the diplomatic uh, uh, record and uh, the historical record. All I can say is I'm, I'm trying, uh, you, you posed the problem correctly. Uh, I'm, uh, I think a precondition for uh, the solution of the problem the way that you and I would like to see it with honest governments and uh, helping countries develop is it has to be done outside the dollar area. And I look at China and Russia uh, and now Iran, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is the only group that can have the critical mass that is even in a position to be able to create an alternative to uh, dollarize neoliberal imperialism. Well, may I just butt in and ask why doesn't China, you know, stop its accumulation of T bills? It's still the biggest single investor in the U.S. Uh, Treasury bills. But secondly, there's a bigger process really, which is flows of surplus. And China is in the world economy. Some would like to call it imperialist, but I think that's exaggerated because simply looking at the flows of profits, dividend ratios, the profits coming into Chinese companies, Huawei. Tencent, Alibaba, and all of the other big ones. On the one hand, those profits coming in versus profits going to Western companies or other companies outside China. And it's really, it's still at about 20%, meaning China is losing a vast amount of its surplus. As Michael Roberts, the economist says, it's really not an imperialist, it's a victim of imperialism. So I completely agree. There's a whole layer of sub-imperialists that are between about 20 and 60%, South Africa, Brazil, Russia, India amongst them. And it seems to me breaking from that, putting on total exchange controls, stopping that kind of ideology of the world economic form of liberalizing corporate power, and then maybe selling those T-bills, starting a run on the US dollar. I would be excited and I'd be very convinced by you. But instead I see China locked into the system, legitimating it, empowering it, giving it finance. The last case is, since you hate the IMF, I'm sure I, I, uh, I aspire to hate the IMF as much as you, Michael. Isn't it extraordinary that when in 2015, the IMF needed more money, it was China that popped in the most and did so by lowering the voting power, the voice of poor countries. So for example, Nigeria lost 41% and Venezuela lost 41, even South Africa lost 21, but China won an extra 37% vote. That to me says they're, you know, part of the system, deputy sheriffs for that uh, East Asian rim, but in it, like Japan, but in a sense, doing even worse because they're taking the same model, amplifying it elsewhere. Do I not make sense? Uh, you put your finger on uh, the key prob dilemma that the dollar standard uh, and dollarization has posed on other countries. Uh, you're quite right that China uh, became the major uh, purchasers of uh, treasury securities. And here's, uh, here's why it did that uh, and the dilemma that uh, it's quite aware of. Uh, when uh, Americans and other countries buy Chinese exports, they pay in dollars. China received the dollars. Uh, uh, the local uh, producers will probably turn it over to the Bank of China to get local uh, currency, and that means the Central Bank of China ends up with these dollars. Now, what is it going to do? Uh, if, it, uh, if it does not buy treasury bills, if it does not recycle 
these dollars into the U.S. economy by buying some kind of dollarized asset, and the United States won't let it buy companies. It won't let it buy assets. Uh, it'll only let it buy treasury bills, which are loans to the U.S. Treasury. Uh, if it does not recycle these, then uh, the China's exchange rate from the dollar flow into China will push up the Chinese currency, and by pushing up the Chinese currency, will make its exports much more expensive. So in order to stabilize its exchange rate, China and every other uh, surplus uh, pay payment surplus country in the world has to, has to recycle its uh, dollar inflows into the U.S. Uh, Treasury, which uh, essentially uses the money to finance the military spending that uh, builds up the eight, 780 military bases surrounding the rest of the world uh, to try to prevent them from creating an alternative uh, to this dollar standard. So uh, uh, China, ha like Russia, has been uh, reducing its dollar holdings as much as possible, just keeping enough to uh, uh, prevent the currency from being destabilized by the dollar inflows. Uh, and it's been, uh, China, Russia are buying gold uh, instead of US dollars as much as possible. Uh, they are doing, uh, China is trying to escape from uh, this uh, uh, buying treasury securities. Why would any government want to buy treasury securities yielding 0.1% when uh, the dollars coming into China are trying to make loans or buying countries, making 15% profit uh, or interest uh, a year. Nobody would want that situation to continue. China doesn't want it to continue. It's stuck under, as long as it uh, is part of an international economy that is dollarized, it is forced to take a loss, a sacrifice, year after year, subsidizing uh, the U.S. economy. And uh, the only way that it can uh, avoid that is to isolate itself from the U.S. dollar. And uh, no country be uh, until this time, since 1945, has ever had the critical mass to be able to do it. But uh, that is the objective, uh, the stated objective of, of Russia, China, and uh, 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 their allies. Of course, they don't want to uh, buy treasury bill. That doesn't mean that, yes, they found a wonderful investment making 0.1% a year and uh, subsidizing the United States. That is not what uh, China or any other country wants. But there, Okay, Patrick, uh, we're getting near the end here, but please respond to Michael. I will, because I, I hate the Tina. Uh, you don't mind me accusing you of Margaret Thatcherite. There is no alternative rhetoric here because there is an alternative. Samir Amin visited China again and again and described to them delinking strategies. The uh, globalization is underway. There's all manner of ways to avoid being sucked in. And I would posit that the most humane and eco-socialist way of thinking about this is to say, if you're in Beijing and you have this vast surplus, you have this huge dollar reserve, you owe, as do I personally, sitting in Johannesburg in the global north, a climate debt. We should be canceling debts to very poor countries, Mozambique next door, the worst hit of Africa on climate. And China is the major, you know, absolute contributor. It's not historically the most. And of course, a great deal of Chinese um, emissions are in a sense outsourced because they go into the consumer goods you and I buy. But wouldn't that be the way forward? Instead of Tina, we have a word in Zulu here, Michael, Temba, T-H-E-M-B-A, means hope there must be an alternative. And demanding from China 
the due reparations, if they really cared about international obligations for wrecking so much of this continent and South Asia and, and East Asia with so many climate catastrophes, it's time for China to fess up and hopefully lead the world in saying a climate debt is overdue to countries in Africa. I certainly owe it, and I hope somebody in China has the ethics to say that's what we should do with our surplus dollars instead of recycling into the Pentagon. Well, there are many okay, Michael, you got the last word here. And as I said in the first segment, this is a beginning of a conversation, certainly not the end, but it's an end of a segment. So you got the last word. Well, the people uh, who I deal with in China are doing just exactly what Patrick is recommending. Uh, of course, I would agree with uh, Samar Amin. Uh, we worked together in Greece. Uh, we always met at the Marxist conferences in Beijing. And uh, both of us are very close to uh, the group in Hong Kong, uh, uh, the world university that I work with. Uh, w with there. So you're absolutely right. Uh, Samar Amin had the, r the right idea, and uh, we're doing everything we can uh, to press for that. All right, great. So thank you both very much. I'm sure there's going to be lots of questions that come in in the comments uh, uh, on the website, on YouTube. So we'll gather again, and we'll uh, further develop the conversation. But for today, uh, Michael Patrick, thanks very much. And thank you, everybody, for joining uh, theanalysis.news. And don't forget to donate, subscribe, and most importantly, get on the website, get on the email list. And uh, we'll see you again soon.